you are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. You got a handout tonight. We're going to be talking about a biblical basis for missions. We started last week uh, looking at uh, just the introduction of what Christian missions is. So if you've got your scripture, you see, uh, at least in the, the handout, we're going to walk through the entire Bible tonight. So we're going to do that fairly quick. We're going to hit some kind of hot spots for us to see. But the reason why this is important for us to see uh, is that we want to see that missions is not just a kind of side gig that God has done. This is what, what God is about. Okay, This is what the task that he is on uh, and what he is about. And, and by the way, if you need a handout, can you just raise your hand? We've got some extra in the back. Awesome. Okay, He'll, keep your hand up. Uh, Taylor will come around and get you some. We've got some extra ones there. Perfect. Okay. Um, so I was on a mission trip as a high school student. We were in New England. Uh, my church youth group was there serving and doing some backyard Bible clubs and whatnot. And one night, we had the unique privilege of we were going somewhere, we were getting situated, our hotel room was this, and and in the hotel, there was kind of like this ballroom kind of area and some conference kind of stuff going on. So we had an opportunity to kind of get real quick uh, to get to a place where we could go to the hotel, get cleaned up, and then we were going to go back out. Well, I got down, and outside coming out of the kind of like conference center there, it, the only way I can describe it was there were a bunch of paparazzi. There were, there were like reporters, cameras, video cameras, and I'm thinking, what in the world is this all about? I hope it wasn't a crime scene, you know, is what I'm thinking, okay, something. Well, they're all waiting, and they kind of position themselves uh, to where the elevator is, which I'm waiting for my friend Will, is supposed to come down and join me. He's been all, uh, upstairs getting ready or whatever. And so, uh, all of a sudden, you, you see the, you know, numbers you know, going down, and it gets to one, and you hear the ding and whatnot, and then the doors open up. And I see my friend Will just kind of looking down. And then he looks up and sees all these cameras, and everybody starts snapping pictures. And he just goes, and this, you know, you would think most people would be like, what is all this about? Will just soaked it in. He's like, you know, glamour shot time, right? He's just posing and stuff, thinking I, all this is for him. And then I just look at him, and I went, I pointed to his right. And he looks to his right, and then he looks up. And he's been sharing the elevator with none other than Shaquille O'Neal for the last few floors. And he wasn't aware of it, okay, right? And so here's Shaquille O'Neal on this elevator. He looks up. Shaquille runs out, and everybody's snapping pictures. And I look at Will and going, "What were you doing? You were on the like, you were on the elevator with this ginormous Goliath of a man, and you didn't even recognize. What were you thinking?" He goes, "I just thought all the cameras were about me." And I'm like, "Nobody cares, Will. Like nobody is thinking this has anything to do with you, right?" And, and the reason why I always think back to that that moment on a mission trip for me was that so often we can somehow look at what's going on in our life and think that all the lights and attention and hoopla is about us. Unaware that we should consider our lives as caught up in something grander than what we could ever possibly imagine. I mean to say it like this. Some of us have hoped that God would assist us as we tried to build our earthly kingdoms. And what God is about is you stewarding your life to join him as he builds his heavenly kingdom. And it's something so different, 
But sometimes in church we get this messed up where we think like God is your personal butler and you ring the bell through prayer and he comes running along to make your life better. That's not the point of life. The point of life is you have been saved from something, saved to something, and we should take that life and steward it well. So tonight, I want us to open up the elevator door, look up, and realize this isn't even about us, right? And while that may seem discouraging, I want to tell you something. It might be the most encouraging thing you ever hear. This life doesn't have to be about you. You know why? Because I've made it about me long enough, and it never works well. So for me to step back and think about it differently may be the secret that I, I need to get into. As we look at a biblical basis for missions tonight, we need to know this. The Bible does not contain missional sections. The Bible itself is a missional book, right? So when I say, don't go to the index in your Bible and go, what are some Bible verses on missions? The whole book is a book about missions. From the very beginning to the very end, it's it. The overarching narrative of Scripture depicts a God going to a lost world with the hope of the gospel. So from the earliest pages as we're going to read, this is, why do we go? Because God goes. Why do we leave? Because God's son left his home to go and tell others what they need to hear. So tonight, what I want us to do is, I'm going to, I've broken up the, the scripture into five major sections, at least for our context tonight, to walk through a couple of key uh, places throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, to at least give us kind of an overarching backing of what I'm talking about. So tonight, we're going to start this first section called the Missionary Guide in Genesis 1 through 11. Now you look at that breakdown and go, it's only 11 chapters. you got a lot more Bible to kind of squeeze in. But these 11 chapters, I will say, uh, I've told this to many people before, if you can get Genesis 1 through 11, you'll understand the rest of the Bible. Now, I'm also going to tell you this. It's some of the more complicated section to read in certain areas. But if you can get what happens there, the rest of it's going to make sense to you. So let's go and, and think about it in this way. We're in Genesis chapter 1, and I want to read verses 27 and 28 to you, which says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, and God blessed them, and God said to them, listen to these words, be fruitful and what? Increase. Increase. Multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. What is he saying? Don't just stay here. I have stamped my image upon you, and I want that to multiply, to fill the earth, and go everywhere as people go, and make sure that that image is sent everywhere that you possibly can. God created mankind in his image, and he commanded them to spread that image throughout all the world. This is what we find in the opening pages. There was a call to be fruitful and multiply. Now, the original intention, it is this. Get married. Have some babies. Teach in the ways of the Lord and watch this spread, right? Well, you get the New Testament. Can I just tell you what also the call is, is often? Get married. Have some kids. Disciple some. Spread the, the nations along. You don't have children. Let spiritual children be in your lineage, right? Invest yourself into the lives of others. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase. Spread his glory among all the nations. Now, as that was the call of how God created Adam and Eve, we also see that things got pretty bad by chapter 3. The book is not going so well, folks, right? Really quickly, it, it takes a turn in this. And what we find in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve chose to believe a lie rather than the truth. They chose Satan's way rather than God's ways and found themselves not only distant from God, 
but now they've got the consequences bearing down on their souls. After their sin, God comes looking for Adam and Eve. He declares war on the enemy and covers their shame. Let me make sure you see those things in Genesis chapter 3 really quick. But in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, there's a beautiful line in verse 8 that sometimes is overlooked, but I don't want you to overlook it anymore. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why do I bring that verse out to you? Because Adam and Eve have left the presence of God physically and spiritually, and God's still on the lookout. He still comes pursuing. You would think, right, in most of our relationships, somebody does something wrong to you, you're just going to sit there in one spot and say, you better come grovel to me and make it right. Not God. God goes on the look. God comes searching. God goes pursuing. How, there, there's an old theologian that called God, this may um, sound uh, not like a, a good phrase to you, but I promise you it, it meant it in a good way. They called God the hound of heaven. He gets a scent and he won't release until he gets his person, right? He's going to come out. And how many of you realize this? That God came looking for you when you were not looking for him, right? Okay, there were things that happened in your life. If you go back and say, I wasn't even looking and something happened and all of a sudden it's like he was after me, right? So God comes looking for them in their sin. I typically, uh, I heard a mentor tell me one time, whenever you share the gospel with somebody, you need to realize this. There's always a grandmama praying somewhere, okay, right? Like God is pursuing. People are praying. Seeds have been planted. Things have been watered. And yet, above all else, God is the one pursuing. So we see him walking, but also we see him declare war on the enemy. Verse 15, this is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. This basically fancy word of saying, the first time the gospel is proclaimed in the Bible. You go, oh, I thought it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. No, first time, Genesis 3.15, because it says, To the uh, uh, serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. The word there literally is seed, which doesn't make a whole lot of anatomical sense here. But what he's saying is this. There's going to be a child that comes from a woman that no man's going to get the birth for, and there's a war going to happen. And here's what the war is going to look like. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. In the moment that this prophesied child of a virgin birth named Jesus, when he would be on the cross, struck in the heel would also be the death blow when he crushes Satan's head. In this moment prophesied thousands of years before Christ is ever born, God declares war on the enemy, and what was done wrong in the garden will be made right. And then in uh, verse 21, as he sends them out of Eden, notice what takes place. The Lord God made clothing. Just hard stop. You mean to tell me they've sinned against you, transgressed against you, completely made a mess out of everything you've done, and now you're going to be a tailor for them? It's making clothes for them. Why? What did they cover up with? Fig leaves, right? Apparently they didn't do a good job because God's like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> We're going to need to do something better. Why? Why did they cover up? Because the first time shame had entered in. Because shame entered in, it's just like us, right? Not, not the kind of way we think about here, but like, you ever feel guilty, you feel like you want to cover up and nobody see who you really are? That's what's happening here. Let me just cover up with fig leaves because no, that's not going to be good enough to cover up your shame. So it says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Just a quick, simple question that I don't mean to be trick at all. How do you get clothing of skin? What does that mean has to happen? Somebody's got to die. 
So you mean to tell me that Adam and Eve walk out of the garden and the only way that they can cover up their shame is in the sacrifice of another? We sing it this way, dressed in his righteousness alone, right? This is this picture. And so God is pursuing, God is declaring war on the enemy. He's covering up their shame. And then as the people set out from here, uh, in in these chapters, we see... uh, God treating sin seriously with Noah and the ark. But I want you to turn over to chapter 11 for a moment. Chapter 11, we see something very, very unique happen. Where it says that the whole earth had the same language, had the same vocabulary. And these people, they had started to make bricks and make a city and a tower. With verse 4 saying, our goal is the top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build this up as high as we can, show how great and mighty we are. And then what takes place in verse number 8 says, So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon. In a place where they're trying to build a tower, and where God said spread out, they decided to stay close. Go out, they built up. I'm going to reach down, and they go, I guarantee we can reach you. We're going to make it about us, God, and God says enough. And so what takes place at that point is new languages, right? New nations. When the people refused to spread, God forced their hand at Babel. He moved them out. Okay, fine. You're not going to spread out? I'll spread you out. So they all show up to work one day, and now they can't speak the language. They can't interact with each other. They get frustrated, and this family goes over here and begins to start this nation with this language. And then all of a sudden, God's desire for a people to be the people of God, in the presence of God, in the place of God, has been robbed from them because of their sin. And now they're scattered, and they can't even speak to each other. This is chapter 11. Things are going to get really, really bad if we can't get something on it. But what's crazy is, is in chapter 11, this missionary God literally scatters the earth, but in the next chapter, he sets forth a plan to reach them. Think about it. Moves this missionary God to what I would call the commissioned nation. And throughout the Old Testament, this nation is called the nation of Israel, that we think of as a geographical location, and understandably so. But beyond that was a call for these people to not think about the blessings of God as an end, but to think about the blessings of God as a means to another end. And that was that the blessings that one nation would experience, all other nations would be able to experience as well. So, in chapter 12, verse 1, an interesting thing starts out. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go. Go? What do you mean, go? Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Where is it? Just start going. I'll show you on the way. Okay? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And listen to this. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Does that sound missional enough for everybody here? Abram, you need to leave your home and go on a path, go on a journey. And because you go on that journey, all the nations will one day know. All the nations will be blessed. As God had scatters the nations there at Babel, he now initiates a plan for Abram to leave his home so that all the peoples on earth will be blessed by his work. See, this is one of the more complicated things about especially missions because if you've ever gone on missions or known somebody who has short-term or long-term, 
there's something difficult about it. In a few weeks, we're going to have somebody that's a member here at our church that is going to be commissioned by the International Mission Board to go to the nations. She is saying no to what's comfortable, what she's thinking, and she is saying yes to, I'm going out there on my own and Rocky Creek, I'll go out there, but I need y'all to be my prayer support. I need you to be my backing. But there is a leaving. Will there be tears tears shed when she leaves everything that she knows to go to a a nation she has not been yet? Will there be tears shed? Yes. Will there be hard moments? Absolutely. And yet she still feels that it's worth it. Abram leaves what he knows is comfortable and goes to something that's not comfortable. And so this plan, this nation is going to happen that eventually we're going to see that God is going to take this nation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and Jacob turning to Israel and the 12 sons of Israel, that this nation is going to do something different. Now turn over to Exodus chapter 1. I know you all heard me say Exodus a lot. You better believe you're going to hear it a lot more this year. Because... What we see in this book, to catch us up on the narrative of Scripture, is that after God blesses this family, this family grows to 70 people, and in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, we see something take place. God sends this tiny family into the most powerful nation in the world to serve as a kingdom of priests to draw their attention to the one true God. In Exodus 1, 1, you can read it as simply as it is worded here. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So Israel is now leaving this, going to this foreign nation so that the glory of God can be known to a people who think they've got thousands of gods, to a Pharaoh who believes he is God. They are about to be introduced to this reluctant mission team who is going to put God's power on display, not just so that Israel has their version of God and Egypt has their version of God, but so that Egypt will know the one true God of the Bible. So there's this leaving, there's this going. You go over to Exodus chapter 19. What do I mean by a kingdom of priests? Okay, um, some of y'all ever been a Bible drill when you were a kid? You're flashing through all that's what it's going to feel like tonight, okay? Exodus chapter 19, you go through it, and you find verse number 3. Moses is at Sinai, and it says, Moses went up from the mountain to God, up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob, and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession, listen to this, out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. This, this uh, speech, this kind of language is picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, where he says that the church is to be called a kingdom of priests. This is where we kind of get this mixed up. We got, oh, there's clergy, there's pastors, there's vocational missionaries. There's this kind of group of people that that's what they do. And then there's just the rest of us and we kind of support that work. That's not how God sees it. Even in Exodus 19, he looks at his people and go, you are a kingdom, not who has priests. You are a kingdom of priests. Why? So that as you go and marching through the nations throughout all, you will be able to bring those people to know God. Understand this, that throughout all the scriptures, even uh, you look at um, what happens to Pharaoh, there are times when Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and there are some times that God does it. Why? He goes, he says it, so that they may know I am the Lord. Folks, do you believe that God is still a God who will do things on an international level to get people's attention? 
Let's just take a real simple, simple thing here. Has anybody else been shocked at how many people prayed and got moved by what happened to DeMar Hamlin a couple weeks ago in a football game? Right? Wasn't that crazy? An ESPN anchor said, y'all, everybody keeps hashtagging pray for DeMar. I think we just need to do it. And on ESPN, he just starts praying. And I'm going, what is going on? He's going to be fired by DeMar. He didn't get fired. Right? Everybody just sees this horrific moment where all of a sudden life seems so frail by somebody who should be so powerful and it just kind of rattled everybody to the core. And it's like a wake-up call of God saying, wake up! You're not invincible. You're not going to live forever. A simple moment and everything can change. See, God does that on, on those levels. He, he does it through Pharaoh. You know, even the, probably one of the highlights of the Old Testament for so many people is David and Goliath, right? We preach that message as, you know, David had bravery and he killed that giant. You can kill your giants too. You need to know this in 1 Samuel 17. You know what David says to Goliath? He doesn't go, I'm going to beat you. He says, you have defied the armies of a living God. And that's why I'm going to march down this valley and I'm going to take your head off so that all nations may know the one true God. Do you know that the battle between this boy and this giant was actually a missional cause so that all these Philistines who believed in those fake gods could see the one true God do something miraculous? At every corner of the Old Testament, it's this commissionation to do something very, very different. Now, I want you to think about, uh, there's a passage of Scripture, Zechariah is kind of a little bit later on in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Zechariah, if you can find it, I'll read it for you here in just a little bit. Uh, if you can't, because it is a, a smaller book towards the end, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. And I also say this, especially for anybody who's just starting in your Scripture study, it's never shameful to look at the table of contents, okay? Never a problem at all. But Zechariah was a prophet to these people. And something is so beautiful that's said about this nation that's supposed to be commissioned. It says in Zechariah uh, chapter 8, verse 23, The Lord of armies says this, In those days, ten men from nations of every language, listen to this, will grab the robe of a Jewish man tightly, urging, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This verse isn't mentioned a whole lot of times in missional stuff, but do you see what's happening here? There's this prophecy. Israel, as you go about your ways and you are passing through the nations, there are going to be people who pick up, there's something different about you folks. The one true God is with you. And like they are literally like a child holding on to the leg of a parent they don't want to go to work. You're going to be walking and they're going to be trailing alongside you to go, there's something different about you. There's something different about the God that you serve. Can we go with you? And now you see why so often it seemed like the nation of Israel had to be exiled. You know why? Because God was commissioning some missionaries to go to some hard places. So that the Daniels of the world or the Esthers of the world, could get the attention of the people who have been far from God. See, Israel was to serve as a distinguished, enticing nation. Right? An enticing nation, there's something different about you. We shouldn't be like every other nation. That's whenever Israel would get messed up. When they called a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they go, we want a king like all the other nations do. Don't you understand, your job's not to be like the nations. Your job's to be different than the nations so that they want to follow the God that's different than the gods they follow. But too often, the people of God try to act too much like the world that we, there's no distinguishing part anymore, right? At this moment, what's happening is, be distinguished. So much so, it's enticing to them. You ever been around somebody that you go, 
that person walks with God. I want whatever they got. Like I, I've heard about God, but that is somebody who walks with them. You ever heard somebody pray that you go, that's a different wavelength there. It's not the words they're saying. You just feel like when they're talking, they know who they're talking to, right? It's enticing. Um, I have seen people suffer and suffer well, giving glory to God and pushing on through. It's, enti- it's invigorating to me, if you will, right? It's almost like this aroma of Christ is all over them and you can't look away from it, right? So they were supposed to be a distinguished, enticing nation. But if you go back a little bit to the left, or you can just trust me, that I'll read it here for you. Another prophet in Isaiah chapter 49, I think is probably one of the best summations of what Israel was intended to be. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God looks at his people and says, you ready for this? He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Folks, this sounds like a New Testament commission type of verse, but this is embedded in the middle of the Old Testament saying, Israel, you're focusing on yourself too much. Yes, I want you to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Yes, I want you to restore the protected ones of Israel. But that's not it. I want you to do that so that you can be a light to the nations. I want you to do all that so that my salvation can reach the ends of the earth. So why do we disciple people within the people of God? Why do we want to grow a church? Not so we can see how many people we can get on the corner of Woodruff Road. We want to see how many people we can send out of here to the nations to the other parts of Greenville County that don't have a a healthy gospel church. Like, that's what we're after. And so he looks at me going, you guys have got the blessing, and you got stuck in the blessing, not realizing it was a means to the end of blessing all other people. Now, can you ever imagine the people of God getting stuck and just thinking about themselves? Folks, welcome to the American church in 2023, right? Me, me, me. And if it's not about me, I'll go to a church down the road. It's not about you. It's so much bigger than what you can possibly ever imagine. It is. What I, I pray and ask for today is that God would awaken sinners to the light of the gospel, that their lives be transformed, that the church that is asleep would be awake, and we would see ourselves as going out. That's what I want. It's too small a thing to say, let's restore the people that are already here. No, no, no. Let something happen here so that it sends us and propels us out. And then... You find in uh, where a lot of people would say this reluctant missionary. Do you remember the guy by the name of Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah's example of missionary defiance, right? It epitomizes the nation's reluctance to see their blessing as a means rather than an end. Jonah, if you don't know the story, God told uh, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. Why did he say, go to Nineveh? Because I love those people, and I want them to hear the truth. And Jonah says, I hate those people. You know what they've done to our nation, right? I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to get on a boat and get as far away as I can from Nineveh. And God goes, oh, I'm going to get you to Nineveh. Right? Y'all ever try to outrun God? (laughs) I'm going to do this, whatever. And somehow he caught up, right? 
boat gets so bad, the ship gets so bad, the storm's so bad, they throw him overboard, and God sends a fish that I like to lovingly call. I named Jonah's fish Grace, by the way. That's her name, okay? You know why? Because you think of the fish as God's wrath against Jonah. That wasn't God's wrath. He was going to die out there. You know what Jonah was? It's God's grace to swallow him up and give him a boat saying, hey, you weren't on that boat or whatever. I'm going to get you on this boat. And all of a sudden he goes through this time where he's praying and he's repenting in Jonah chapter 2 and he, all of a sudden this, this fish spits Jonah out on the mission field. <laughs> Whew. I'm going to tell you one more time. Go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah getting all that fish guts all off of him. Alright, I'll go. Walks in that land. This is his compassionate sermon. He gave, walked around all in Nineveh and started saying this. In 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. 40 days, all y'all going to die. Bye. Right? Okay, that's it. He walks around the city. That's the sermon he gives. Y'all got 40 days or God's going to get you. And guess what happens? They repent. Start wailing. God, please, no, no, no. We, we're going to change. We want to do things different. We're sorry. And all of a sudden, Nineveh walks out. Sets up on a mountain, hoping that what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, like fire and brimstone falling from the sky, just blowing that city up. And he sits there on the top of that mountain watching it, and it never comes. God says, you mad, Jonah? Yeah, I'm mad. I'm mad enough to die. Why are you mad, Jonah? Because I knew this about you. You're so loving and gracious and compassionate. And I was going to go there and you're going to let those people off the hook. You know what they've done to my family. You know what they've done to our nation. And I knew this about you. You were going to give them a second chance. See, Jonah wanted second chances from God that he did not want to provide for other people. Grace for me, wrath for them. Mercy for me, judgment for them. And Jonah while I believe was a real-life messed-up missionary, okay? I think he also epitomizes that Israel's reluctance to do exactly what has been said of them. In Isaiah 42, let me read this to you. Verses 18 through 20, this is what he says to God's people. Listen, you deaf. Look, you blind, so that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf like my messenger I am sending? What? Your messengers, blind and deaf, they don't get it. Who is blind like my dedicated one or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things, you pay no attention. Though his ears are open, he does not listen. Here's this picture of the people of God who ought to know better and have clogged their ears up and refusing to do what God has called them to do. And while I want to throw stones at those Israelites, too often I find myself just like them. Wanting to be all about me, build myself up, but never walk outside of this. Now that is the Old Testament. But then we get to the restorative Messiah that we see in Matthew chapter 1 all the way through John chapter 21. We see when Jesus comes on the earth that something takes place that changes everything. In fact, obviously, if you think about a missionary... I cannot think about someone else to be able to walk outside of what his home and is a lot better than whatever amenities that you and I are accustomed to, right? When he left his home to go on mission, everything was completely different. And Jesus' mission focused on those who knew they needed restoration, not those who were comfortably numb in their self-righteousness. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, uh, we're going to have to start moving through these fast so you can follow along or, just, or, or look them up later, but this is what he says. He told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. What a statement, right? Hey, 
If anybody here tonight, if I were to ask you, last few years of your life, have you felt more like a sinner or more righteous? You go, oh, I feel more like a sinner. I don't even know if I need to be in church tonight. You're in good news because that's who Jesus came for. Jesus didn't come for people who thought they had it all together. You know why? Because people who have it, think they have it all together really don't. They're probably in worse shape than you can even possibly imagine. Jesus said, I came to people who know they're sick. I came to find people who know they're lost. That's what his mission was, right? And so when we see that in, in the Gospel of John, when it's mentioned about Jesus, there are these opening words that are so beautiful because in John chapter 1, verse 14, it speaks about Jesus. And what it says there is, uh, the word, speaking about Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so the word became flesh. The Son of God left heaven and took on flesh. And it says he dwelt with us. That word actually means that he tabernacled among us. Think about it for a second. Jesus tabernacled among the people of this world so that we would know his grace and truth. And you go, I don't even know what a tabernacle is. Tabernacles was something they constructed in the Old Testament so that the people could dwell with God. That even though they were on earth, they could have a piece of heaven. And so it's like they could reconnect with God despite their sin. Beautiful uh, thread throughout the Old Testament. If you read through Genesis, every time God's people stray, they always go a certain direction. It's east. East of Eden... Uh, Lot goes east, Cain goes east, Babylon, after Babylon they go east. People just keep going further and further and further, so they get kicked out of the garden and keep going one track towards east, which is beautiful because you know when the tabernacle's set up, guess where God says put the door? At the east side. You know, why is that important? Because you can stray and wander and run away from God, and the moment that you wake up and you turn around, the door is open for you to come back to Him. That's the picture, right? You run and you move away, and yet the door is open on the east side. So they're walking in, and Jesus is saying this. He came to tabernacle among us. He left his home, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, and came as a baby to live a perfect life, to dwell among us who needed that grace and truth. God sent his son, the greatest missionary who has ever lived, to save the world from their sins. John 3.17 says, God did not send the Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. So if you think that you have heard from church people that God is out to get you and condemn you, we have not delivered the good news, we have given you the bad news. The gospel is called the good news of Jesus, not the bad news of Jesus. So we've got to understand that the good news is this. We are sinners, and Christ has come on the lookout for us. He has come for us. And that is the beauty of the truth of the gospel. So this Messiah comes in. He lives a perfect life. He dies a death of which he does not deserve. He rises on the third day and then ascends into heaven where he sits now at the right hand of God. And as he does that, one of his last things is sending the church out to where he's called them to go. So in Acts chapter 1, we realize that the Holy Spirit empowered and directed the early church to be witnesses both near and far. In Acts chapter 1, 8, what he says is, you will be my witnesses, okay? He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And he says four areas to them, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If I were to give you an understanding of what that map would look like, this is what it would look like. Jerusalem would be this, this little point in the middle. Judea would kind of look like this. Uh, Samaria would kind of look like this. And guess what? The ends of the earth is everywhere else, right? It's this picture as if if God had given the Great Commission to us in Greenville, it's almost as if he would say, hey, uh, I want you to be my witnesses here in Greenville, 
And South Carolina, I know my drawing's great here. And, uh, and then to Samaria, people who aren't like you in this kind of portion of the world, but then I want you to get to the ends of the earth. It's, it's kind of like this. Start where you are and keep going. Start where you are, keep going. So is missions near or is it far? Yes. Is it local or is it global? Yes, it's both. That's why we want to have a Go Greenville thing, and we also want to send people on the other side of the world. You know why? Because people in the city need Jesus, and people on the other side of the world need Jesus. So start in Jerusalem. Spread out to Judea. Go to Samaria to people who aren't like you, and make your way all the way to the ends of the earth. See, the missionary movement was built on the willingness to surrender all for the sake of those who needed the gospel. In the book of Acts, we start with Peter leading the church, and then other people come alongside. We find Saul, who turns into Paul, and we see Paul start all these missionary journeys and people sending them out. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, this is my life first. I know y'all hear me say every week, I want to invite you to turn with me to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I mean it every single week. But if I've got a Bible verse that I have said from when I was 18 years old, this will be the defining verse for my life. Apostle Paul is in the comfort of a church that he knows in Ephesus and feels like God is calling him to Rome, and he knows if he goes there, he's going to die. And he's still getting on the boat anyway. You know why? Because people need to hear the gospel. And in Acts 20, 24, on his farewell address, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, my life is about one thing and one thing alone, telling other people how they can find Jesus. That was it. That was it for him. That's how the church was built. That's how it was sent out by people who were willing to risk everything, surrender it all. And in the going and sending of missionaries, all Christians have some part in the task of reaching the nations. In the heart of Romans chapter 10, there's this beautiful uh, three verses that I believe really tell us what a church is supposed to look like, right? Um, chapter 10, verse 13. Some of y'all will know this verse by heart. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, saved right? So, you know, so I just need to say, save me, God. I called on your name. No. Like, if you've ever been in a moment of desperation, I've had people in a moment of desperation call out, like, I need help or I'm going to die, right? Like, that's the kind of, like, calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. You're my only cho- chance, Jesus. And then look what verse 14 says. How then can they call on him and who they not believed in? So I can't call on Jesus until I believed in Jesus. Okay, that makes sense. Well, how can they believe without hearing about him? Okay, that makes sense too, right? I pray that today some people believed in Jesus for the first time. How are they going to believe in him if they don't hear about him, right? Somebody's got to open their mouth, share the gospel, like what I've tried to do today, okay? So, it makes sense, but then listen to this. So how can they hear without a preacher? And you go, oh, that's why we got preachers. That word does not mean people who are in vocational ministry. That means people who are proclaiming God's word. That means you. That means me. That means my kids. That means my parents. Like anybody can do that, right? Can you proclaim God's truth to somebody else? You go, I'm not that proficient. All I'm asking you to do is brag on what God has done in your life and point people to the Word. Can you do that? That's not hard. i got to get a seminary degree for that? No. You do that, it might slow you down. You tell people what God has done in my life and how can I share it with somebody else, right? So, how can they hear that a preacher? Then listen to this. And how can they preach unless they are sent? Somebody's got to let them go. Somebody's got to raise them up. 
Somebody's got to disciple them. Somebody's got to support them. Somebody's got to pray for them. Somebody's got to commission them. And somebody's got to get on the van and put them on the plane or send them a commission over there to plant this church or to go out in this ministry or go on the other side of the world. Somebody's got to be on the other end of that line sending them out. So you go, well, so what's my role? Well, you're either sending, <laughs> preaching, sharing, supporting, praying, but all of us have got to be part of this going process somehow. Every single one of us. And it says this, quotes from Isaiah chapter 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? You go, I've seen some missionary feet on the, the, the eh, it's so beautiful. They're, they're dirty, they're dusty, they're tired, they wore out. It's this beautiful sense of those who said, I will follow God with my life. Can I just let everybody see this uh, also? I believe God calls some people to Jerusalem, some to Judea, some to Samaria, some to the ends of the earth, but all of us should be called somewhere to do something. I do not believe those who are called to live their lives on the international mission field are more important or more sacred than those who feel called to Greenville County as long as you are living a Great Commission lifestyle. Now, there's part of me that wants to go, some of y'all got to get out. Some of y'all got to go. Some of you got to leave, but I also want... Let's not get a hierarchy that thinks, well, those people are called and those people are missionaries, but me, I just kind of sit in church and just take it all in. If you stay here, that means that God has appointed and commissioned you to Greenville County. What are you doing to take the gospel there? This is what the call is. So it eventually leads us to the completed task. In Revelation, we find in chapter 1, the final book of the Bible, some incredible words from God's truth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 speaks about this coming Jesus that's going to come back. It says, Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. What we see in this moment is a prophecy, a promise, that Jesus will return, causing some to rejoice and others to mourn because they have rejected the gospel. I've always used the example, one time um, my daughter was being picked on by some kids and I found out about it and I came around the corner to find the boys who were doing that. And at that moment when I turned the corner, my daughter and her friends started to rejoice and cheer going, yay, Mr. Agnew, yay, daddy. And those boys looked terrified and ran for their life. Same person, same movement, different reaction based upon their activity. And I say that because there's coming a day when Jesus will return and what's going to happen is some of us are going to say, He's come. He's bringing us back home. And some of them are going to go, Uh-oh. Can you give me five more minutes? And He's going to say, I've given you your entire life. No more time. Now is the time. There's no turning back at that point. So He's coming back, is what Scripture says. And in chapter 7, verse 9, it speaks about what the end will look like, what heaven will look like. And this is beautiful. It says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from how many nations? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, which no one could even number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes. I don't deserve to be in white, pure clothes. Don't worry, you've been, you've been washed in the blood. You're now clean, you're pure. Washed in the white robes with palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and, who, and to the Lamb. Here's this picture. Eternity's picture includes people from all over the world saved by the person and work of the Lamb of God. 
there's coming a day, folks, where our family picture is going to be so diverse and glorious. The people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered together have more indifference than you can possibly imagine, but the most important thing about them they have in common, they have placed their faith in Jesus, and we have been made one under the blood of Christ. That day is coming, folks. People from the United States and people from Sudan and people from China and people from all over the world will come together under one banner and one banner alone. It will not be the flag of the nation which occupied their citizenship for most of the decades of their life. It will be the banner of the Lamb of God by whose blood that we have been saved and redeemed. And the redemptive reunion is characterized by a city coming down to us rather than a city going up to God. At the very end, Revelation chapter 21 Get this picture. Think about these hinge points. Genesis 11, the people are building a city to go up, right? Let's stay here and go up and we'll reach God on our own terms. And God says, stop the city. Stop the spreading. Stop the going up. In Acts chapter 2, when they were in a city, the Spirit came down. And they all could speak the language of those that had been separated at Babylon. Now in Jerusalem, the gospel went to them. And now at this point in Revelation chapter 21, what we find, verse 2, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Do you catch this? All of life, all of history, people have been trying to build a city to reach God, to be God, to replace God. And the end of all things, this city comes down because we could not make it up. The picture of being reunited with God is about how he came to us and not how we will come to him. Then in chapter 21, going down to verse 24, while there's so many more places that I would love to take you with, and we'll look at some others in the weeks to come, let me at least share this with you. Verse 22, it says, I did not see a temple in it. Speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. We don't have a temple. We can't have worship service. We don't have a temple. Well, the temple was there because you couldn't be with God. So if God is there, guess what you don't need anymore? The temple. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The Listen to this. Nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Scripture describes the new heaven and the new earth as having a light by which the nations will walk. God's plan fulfilled, completed task when all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all those who have surrendered to Jesus gathered around and now the light that we have been longing to see since the beginning, since the moment that we sin, all of a sudden the light turns on and the light is none other than God Almighty. Folks, I want to let you know something. I am so much a person of the book that when you go to chapter 22, verse 21, or 20, It says, He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. I believe the end of this book, one day Jesus is coming back. 
I believe the end of this book that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth with people from all throughout history with every single nation represented. I believe that end is coming. And here's what I know. If I fail to engage my life in the mission of God, that reality is still going to happen. But if I surrender my life to his cause, then when I get there, I get to look around and say, I see that life. That's the person that lived down the road for me that I shared the gospel with, and I got to pave the path for them to come. Like, right? Like, oh, and you're going to meet somebody else, and you go, hey, remember that person over there? I haven't met you yet. Tell me who you are. Oh, you remember that missionary that you sent out on the other side of the world that you prayed for, that you saved money for? Yeah, you never came, but you sent her. And because of her, I've received the gospel, and I'm here now because of your sacrifice. Folks, this end is coming, and the way that we steward our lives allows us to rejoice even more to see what our lives got to be a part of. So I'm asking all of us tonight, as we conclude this lesson, is for this. Don't demean the opportunity that your one life can be about making your little K kingdom about everything building up your cities and seeing how great you are. It would be much better for you to lose your life in the cause of an eternal kingdom which maybe you won't be remembered by all the places you'd like to be, but God will see it. And other people's lives can be transformed. I'm asking all of us to wake up to the fact somebody else is in the elevator. A lot larger and more significant than maybe we are. Instead of being caught up in our own little world, maybe we can open up our eyes to see what God is inviting us into. And so tonight, Father, I ask that as you have sent Jesus, and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit sent those original disciples, and it has made its way all the way around to Greenville, South Carolina. May you send us out. And we see the one meta narrative of Scripture as a missionary God that no matter how often we sinned or rebelled against you, you did not give up on us. And if you didn't give up on us, we won't give up on our family members and friends and neighbors in this culture that seems like they have no thought or regard for you. We will go until you come, King Jesus. And one day, you have to look to see the family that you have brought together and the opportunities that you allowed us to be a part of. We'll give you all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. And it's the name of Jesus Christ we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.